0: Zach, do you know who the richest person in the world is? Who here thinks they know who the richest person in the world is? I thought I knew too. This is uh, from Forbes magazine, March 10th this year. And this shows you, I guess you can be really rich and no one would still know you. I've never heard of this guy. But Forbes, every year they put out the list of the world's most wealthy, you know, the world's billionaires. And so... In March of this year, they wrote that surging prices of his various telecom holdings, including giant mobile outfit America Mobile, a company I've never heard of, uh, Mexican tycoon Carlos Slim Elu, this is the richest man in the world, FYI, Carlos Slim Elu, has beaten out Americans Bill Gates and Warren Buffett to become the wealthiest person on earth and nabbed the top spot on the 2010 Forbes list of world's. Billionaires, Slim's fortune has swelled to an estimated fifty-three point five billion, up eighteen and a half billion in twelve months. They continue that massive hoard of scratch puts him ahead of Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, who had held the world uh, the world's richest title fourteen of the past fifteen years. Feel sorry for Bill because he's five hundred million dollars behind. Uh, slim at fifty three billion ranked second in the world this year. Who is the world 's richest person guy i 've never heard of Carlos Slim Elu world 's richest man. You know, in a materialist culture like ours, and frankly, in the world, we are focused on material wealth. Uh, slim Elu has what most of us think we're after: the financial ability to pretty much do anything you wanted. Spend on yourself, give away to others, and still have buckets of gold left. The world's richest guy. In terms of financial wealth, Carlos Slim Elu is the world's richest man. And when we think of the term rich or riches or wealth, generally, if you're like me, your mind goes to the material side of things. And if you read in Webster's Dictionary, there's a good reason for that. The primary definition of wealth is Valuable possessions, land, goods, money. So, if we're talking about riches, the primary thought usually is something we can get our hands on. Something we can measure, we can stack up, we can put in a bank, something like that, something tangible you can get your hands on. But there's a secondary use to the term riches, and that is an abundance of anything. An abundance of anything. So you might say that you are rich or wealthy in your family or your friends. Or we might say he was rich in wisdom or something else intangible. We could be rich or have wealth in things that we can't get our hands on. We'd recognize that as well. So money is one kind of wealth, for sure, financial, tangible. But there are other kinds of wealth as well. And when we evaluate our life and we think of wealth, and, riches, and we think about that in the context of our life, what do we think about? What do we count as wealth and riches in our life, in our time today, now? As you think about that term, what are the first things that come to your mind? Or as you meditate at home and think, I'm wealthy or I'm not wealthy, what comes to mind? I stood here in a worship service a, two or three weeks ago, and I can't remember which song was on, but... I was just struck again by what we have in Christ, by what Christians have in Christ, wealth and riches we have in Christ. And I was just, I sort of felt reproved again because often I forget that. And it was at that moment I thought, when I get a chance, I want to talk about what we have in Christ. If we can lift our eyes above the things we're normally thinking about related to wealth and riches and see what God has provided for us in Christ. As rich as Mr. Elu is, in biblical terms, if he's not a Christian, and I have no idea what his standing is before Christ, none whatsoever, but if he's not a Christian, the poorest, weakest, youngest Christian in our midst or on the earth today has more wealth than Mr. Elu could ever purchase with the multiple billions he's got at his disposal. Let me start with just a couple brief verses. Paul said in Second Corinthians 8, 9... You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, you will sometimes hear this verse, or you might even read it for yourself and think of tangible wealth. That's really not its primary emphasis. It could include tangible wealth. Christ has certainly given us provision for living, which we'll talk about later. But it's primarily spiritual. And Paul says in this verse that Christ came down in the incarnation, died on the cross, and rose from the dead so that we who had been in this position of poverty, spiritual poverty, could be given incalculable wealth and riches in Christ through him. Jesus means for Christians to be wealthy, to be rich in all the ways that God counts important. The other one is this, Ephesians 3, 8 Uh, Paul says there, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Think about this for a minute. We can count up Mr. Elu's wealth. It's a staggering number, right? Billions of dollars. It's a staggering number. But you can count it up. But Paul says when you're considering the kind of riches and wealth God means for Christians to have and experience, he says, it's so deep, it's so broad, it's so high, you can't measure it. You can't get your arms around the kind of wealth that God has provided for us in Christ. I was struck as I, preparing for this story uh, for this morning, uh, as I was reading through my Bible, there are two phrases that come up again and again in the New Testament about Christians and Christ. One phrase is in Christ, and the other one is in Him. They essentially mean the same Thing. if you do a study, if you do a word search, in Him is in Christ, in Christ and in Him. I've got, by my count, 48 verses in the New Testament that describe what is true of us or for us in Christ as Christians. And about 40 times, depending on how you choose to interpret them, but about 40 times the term in Him describing what Christians have or what's true of Christians in Christ. And when we're saying in Christ, we're just simply saying anyone who has trusted in the Lord Jesus. This is not extra credit. It doesn't require more work. If you've believed in the Lord Jesus, you become saved and you're his and you have his spirit living in you and you're in Christ. So over 80 times in the New Testament, we have verses that explain to us what is true of us in Christ or what Christ has provided for us through himself, over 80 times. God wants us to know what we have, what we're meant to enjoy in Christ, wealth and riches in Christ. If you guys did your own list, you'd come up with something different. I've got a few things that I'll share this morning about what we have in Christ, some of that wealth, some of those riches. The first is this, the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. The riches we have, the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Apart from this one, nothing else really matters. Um, if we don't have the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life, then we simply die and we're separated from Christ forever, and that's, that's the end of that. If we've got this, everything else has context and meaning. Uh, Psalm 49, verse 7 and 8 is a great uh, short passage, and it says something to this effect, that the redemption of an individual soul is so costly that it's beyond the price of anyone to provide for anyone else. You should give up, cease striving forever. If salvation, if the forgiveness of our sins had a price tag in our realm of payments, Psalm 49 says, it is so high, don't even think you can get there. The cost is beyond anyone's ability to provide for. And yet, the Scripture is clear that the first bit of wealth or riches we have is the knowledge that our sins are forgiven and we have eternal life as a possession right now. So for instance, Romans 3, 24 says, we're justified as a gift by His grace, by God's grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. For us, we're given the wealth of redemption as a gift, but it's because Jesus paid the, the price or the cost of that gift that Psalm 49 says we can't meet, Christ met for us and then gives us this gift, this wealth, these riches in the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. This is something, no matter how much money, you know, God scoffs at the idea that man can provide for his own salvation. No matter what kind of currency you think of, the idea that man can provide, can buy his own salvation is an aberration to God. The distance is incalculable. But this is the first bit of wealth or riches we have, the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. Romans 6.23 says something very similar. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages of sin is death. The free gift, the wealth we enjoy, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And last, Philippians 3 verse 9, Paul says there that he um, is found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Um, If you are declared to be righteous or justified by a holy God, by the holy God, this means that you have absolute freedom to stand before God, that there's nothing that keeps you away from him. God is holy. He makes it very clear in the Scriptures. And on our own, we couldn't approach Him. But when God has said that in Christ we are forgiven and we're justified, that means that this kind of standing Christ has before the Father, that's the same standing we have. Sins are forgiven. Nothing holds us back from the Father. We have possession of eternal life right now. Many Christians struggle with the thought, if I died, I've trusted Christ, but if I died, would I go to heaven? If you've trusted Christ, yes, you'll go to heaven. I say absolutely. On the authority of the Scriptures, yes, you'll go to heaven. Guys, if eternal life isn't eternal, what is it? Life to the ages. That's what it means. Life forever. If you're a Christian, you have the wealth of knowing your sins are forgiven. You have eternal life right now. Not when you die, not by and by, not later sometime, maybe. You have eternal life right now. This is the wealth and the riches that makes everything else matter. Apart from this, you have nothing If you're not sure you're a Christian this morning, you need Christ. Nothing nothing else. Mr. Ellu's billions mean nothing if you don't have Christ and know Him. Everything we're talking about this morning only has context and meaning if you're in Christ, if you've trusted Him, if He's your Savior. The second thing, and this is a biggie. If your sins have been forgiven, this next one is a biggie. You have peace with God. You have vertical peace, peace with God. And you have internal peace. Peace. You have a clear conscience. So listen to Paul again in Romans 5, one, Having been justified by faith, we're declared righteous, we're in right standing with God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Though we deny it many times, we know simply because we have a conscience that we're not what we should be. And that that means there's an issue between us and God, that we're not at peace with God. But in salvation, Paul says, you know what? Once you've been declared just... And righteous, you're now at peace with the God of the universe, with this holy, righteous God. He's at peace with you. Nothing holding you back anymore. We have peace with God through or because of our standing in Christ. Vertical peace. This is, this is huge. Move on to Romans 8.1, and Paul goes on there and says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I was in a service here, I think, last year. And for whatever reason, a profound sin of my youth was just weighing heavily on my mind. I couldn't worship. I, I was just emotionally tied up. And I'm standing here saying, Lord, am I okay on this or not? Guys, I've been at this a long time. I've been a Christian a long time. I've read my Bible a long time. And I'm still standing here in a worship service saying, Lord, am I okay? Am I okay between me and you? Is it okay? Am I okay? Because my conscience was condemning me for something I'd done 40 years ago. And as Sean taught, he quoted from Ezekiel 18.22 in which God says, I've put your sins behind me and I'll never remember them again. And it was being reminded of that all that that sense of condemnation just drifted away, and I had prayed, lord i've got to hear from you this morning. Am I okay or not? And God spoke through Sean and said, "Your sins are forgiven. i don 't remember them. Sort of what are you talking about? And my world changed. I went from feeling the weight of the world on my back to knowing i 'm good to go i 'm okay, and I could worship again. And guys, you know, most of us, we trust Christ and we get saved but we think of things we've done before. Or we think of things we've done since we became Christians. And we get this nagging thing in the back of our mind where we feel this condemnation. And we're not sure that we're okay between God and us. Our conscience accuses us. Paul says in Romans 8.1 that once we've been justified by faith in Christ, we have vertical peace with God. And guys, there's no condemnation left. There's no reason for my conscience to accuse me anymore. Those sins done in the past, they're covered by the blood of Christ. I'm good to go. I don't answer for those. Christ already did. You see the same thought in Hebrews 9.14 where it says, uh, uh, The blood of Christ who offered himself through the eternal spirit will cleanse your conscience from dead works. I can't tell you how often I've struggled and I've come to this verse to say it's the blood of Christ that cleanses my conscience. In other words, when I'm feeling accused for my sin, it's reminding myself that Christ's offering on the cross, his life poured out in his blood, is the adequate covering for my sin. And if my sin's forgiven, my conscience is now clear. This is huge for the Christians. And guys, part of what happens is this. You sin. And you know you've done wrong, and so at some point you confess, and you feel like between you and the Lord you're good to go. But the enemy will bring in those thoughts from the past, those failures, and he will accuse you. And you know what you'll say? I can't talk to somebody else about their sin because I'm a sinner. I can't share Christ with them because my life isn't what it's supposed to be the condemnation will hinder you from not only enjoying the riches in Christ God means you to, but it also makes you ineffective in the way God wants you to be used in the lives of others. So we've got to understand one of the riches and the wealth we have in Christ is knowing we've got peace inside, peace with God vertically, peace inside from our own conscience, from our own knowledge that we don't measure up. God says, I know, I've taken care of that in the blood of my son. Philippians 4.7 says, The peace of God which passes all comprehension, you can't measure this wealth either, wider than we can get a hold of, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We live in a culture in which you can buy the latest therapeutic drugs. If you've got the money, you can go to the best psychiatrists and counselors. And guys, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you cannot buy peace with God, and you cannot buy peace in your own mind and in your own soul your own conscience. But this is a gift. It's a wealth. It's riches we have as those in Christ. in Christ. Excuse me. The third thing is this, provision for life. Paul said in Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is a mind-blowing promise, by the way, but with a huge uh, uh, element maybe to clarify. Uh, Supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I wonder how much riches in glory in Christ Jesus Christ has to meet my needs. Probably enough, right? I mean, he's God, and he probably has enough to take care of whatever my needs are. Uh, Part of the trouble with a verse like this is we're not sure what our needs are and what our wants are. And if you read this verse in context of the rest of the chapter of Philippians 4, Paul's saying this, and Paul says, Guys, I've been through some skinny times in my life. I've been through times when I didn't have two nickels to rub together. I've been poor. I've been shipwrecked. You know. I've been lean. I've been thin because I didn't have food to eat, etc., etc. But in that, he says, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Through Christ, I could go through all of those. No problem. So Paul says, I've, been, I've seen skinny times. So this isn't saying God's providing all the things that we want. That's the critical thing here to understand. It's not that he's going to give us everything that we want. He says he's going to meet our needs. We often confuse our desires and our wants with our needs. And sometimes there's a vast difference between what we consider needs and what God considers needs. But what God looks at in our life as a need. He says, guys, no problem. I'm going to take care of those needs. They're covered in the riches and the wealth Christ has that's committed to you for whatever your needs are. That's what you've got. This is sort of a carte blanche promise. Whatever our real needs are before Christ, God says they're already taken care of. Payment's are already there. It's available. It's there. When we were in Southern California, when we moved the girls down earlier this year, I chatted with a guy who is the head of a, of a large Christian ministry in Southern California. And he's, he's taught in seminary before. You know, he's, he's sort of a guy that you'd sort of consider, this is an important guy. And, and down to earth, super nice guy. But as we're talking about one thing and another, he tells me this short story. Years earlier, he and his wife in Christian ministry uh, didn't have two nickels to rub together. They had no food. They had no money. They're standing in the living room of their house. And he's, just, he's ticked with God for his situation. And he says, God, I don't even have a bar of soap to clean up with. And the living room door to their house happened to be open. And a dog he had never seen before ran into his house, I kid you not, with a bar of soap in his mouth, dropped it at his feet, and walked out. <laughs> Serious. God, I don't even have a bar of soap. And God says, here's a bar of soap. Go, go clean up. I was blown away by that. But check this out. This guy and his ministry had been praying for years for God to provide a certain kind of facility for them. And out of the blue, last year, a Christian business dropped in their lap a multi-million dollar facility in the Northeast United States uh, that you'll be reading about in the future, a new Christian college. Uh, I think it was a $7 million college campus. They just bought and just gave it to them, something they'd prayed about for a long time. But God says he is committed to providing for our needs, whatever they are. Not our wants, not our desires, but our needs. Another verse along this line is in Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3. Paul there talks again about wealth. In this context, he says, "...attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding... Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God says the scriptures declare that wisdom and knowledge, that's riches and that's wealth. In fact, when you read the book of Proverbs, it says desire wisdom rather than tangible assets, tangible riches or wealth. Desire wisdom and understanding. Paul says that the Christian has in Christ this inexhaustible wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And if you're like me, you're faced with situations all the time where you say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I need your wisdom. I need the knowledge of what to do in this situation. And Paul says the wealth is there. It's like it's in a bank for you. It's right there in Christ, God's wisdom, God's knowledge for you in all the things that come up. They're there for us, just like money in the bank in Christ. So provision for living, whatever that is, God says it's committed. The check's written. Your needs are covered in Christ. The last one I want to share this morning might sound a little odd, your riches or your wealth in Christ. Normally, if we're thinking about wealth and riches, we're thinking about money that we can spend and maybe, maybe more often than not spend on ourselves, on what we would say is our needs, right? But there's another side of having wealth or riches, and it's the ability to give away, right? You know, oftentimes we, when we're pleading with God for more money, we say, Lord, man, I'd, I'd do a good job with that money because I'd give a lot of it away. Well, God wants us to be generous, right, with what he gives us. And one of the ways that God enriches us, gives us his riches and wealth in Christ, is so that we can give it away to others specifically. In fact, this is a wealth you can only spend on others. And this is, called, this is in the arena of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. I know this is a little different tack on spiritual gifts, but think of it this way. If you're a Christian, the Scripture says that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and one of the things He has done inside you in your rebirth is He has given you supernatural spiritual enablements to bless others in a way that honors Christ and there's metaphors for this in the scriptures the body of Christ etc but if you're a Christian you have a spiritual gift the scriptures clear First Corinthians 12 you've got it many of us don't know what that is and that's another issue that's something for another day but if you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. And depending on which text you read, it's a it's a, a gift given by the Spirit or it's a grace gift, a charisma. When we say charismatic, we're just using a Greek term that means a grace gift. So in 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There's four key passages in the New Testament that talk about spiritual gifts. Romans 12... 1 Corinthians 12-14, through Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. In varying lengths or degrees, they mention spiritual gifts. They, They don't all have the same terms, by the way, which probably means there's more spiritual gifts than are listed in those, but those are examples at least. But if you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift, a supernatural enablement to serve others and honor Christ in the doing. So you might be gifted to serve, to teach, to lead, to encourage, in evangelism, to exhort, to pray... Your spiritual gift could be any one of a number of things. But the point would be this. Your spiritual gift is like a check that you can write over and over and over. You can spend your gift over and over and over again on others, and it never runs out. It's like having a checking account you can always write another check on because your gift doesn't wear out because the Lord is in it. And it's the ability to serve others, to spend on others. And you can always keep spending. It never runs out. So as Christians, you remember Paul quotes Jesus, though it's not in the Gospels, but he says the Lord said it was more blessed to give than to receive. There's a special joy or encouragement that comes when we give away to others, when we bless them. Well, part of the wealth or the riches God has given us is In the area of spiritual gifts, it's the ability to bless people, to give, to spend on others over and over and over again with a kind of wealth that never runs out. So one of our riches or the areas of wealth we have is simply in the arena of our spiritual gift. So this is a short list, but in Christ we have the forgiveness of our sins. We have right standing before God. We have eternal life right now. We have peace with God We have clear consciences, peace vertically, peace within ourselves. We have provision for every area of our life, and we have the ability to spend ourselves on others in ways that impact them forever. This is wealth. This is riches. And the most important things in life you can't buy. And the most important things in life, the wealthiest, the richest things in life are the things God has already given us in Christ. Now, if I tell you that you're rich in Christ that you got all this wealth, you might say, I'm not seeing it and I'm not feeling it. And if we're so rich, why do we feel like spiritual paupers? If I've got all this wealth in Christ, where's the beef? Why don't I see more of that in my life? Let me suggest a few ways that we can see benefit, gain the benefit of more of the riches in Christ God means us to. Uh, The first is this simple. Uh, It's to ask or it's to pray to say, Lord, would you show me more of Christ? Would you show me more of the riches that you've made available to me in Christ? When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he included in this six-chapter letter three prayers. They're they're really deep, meaningful, significant prayers in the New Testament. And the one he wrote in chapter 3 says in part this. This was his prayer for the Ephesians. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. When Paul was praying for his friends in Ephesus, and guys, these were, these were sort of in their day, these were spiritual giants. These were the spiritually mature folks in Ephesus, theologically deep, evangelistic outreach. I mean, this was a state-of-the-art church. Yet when Paul prayed for them, he said, I'm praying that God enlarges your ability to comprehend your riches in Christ. They already knew some of it. Paul says, I want, I want your mind to be expanded to get more sense of the riches you have in Christ. In fact, this phrase, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. This almost sounds like idolatry, doesn't it? that God would somehow pour his fullness into us. But that was Paul's prayer for them, that we could get a sense, get a grasp of the riches, the wealth we had in Christ. That was Paul's request for the Ephesians. You see in James 4 too, James says, you don't have because you don't ask. Sometimes we don't have the riches, we don't have the benefit of the wealth we should enjoy in Christ simply because we have not asked. Asking, praying about that is certainly a first step. Another way, and perhaps just day-to-day, the most important thing that we can do to gain a clearer vision or sense of Christ and the riches that He means us to enjoy is simply to meditate in the Scriptures, to meditate in the Scriptures. Jonathan taught about this last week. Meditate just means to turn something over in our mind, to think about it again, to look at it from different vantage points. If you think of the term ruminate, rumen means a throat, and ruminate, That's what cows do, right, when they eat. This is gross, I'll grant you, but you get the picture. You know, when you see cattle grazing a certain part of the day, they're clipping off a bunch of grass. They're chewing on it, and then they swallow it. And then they get gross because they, they bed down someplace, right? And what do they do? They regurgitate out of their stomach, pull it back into their mouth, chew it up some more. Swallow it down again. Well, that's what we're talking about doing with the Scripture. Gross. You know, the beauty of that is it's so gross you don't forget it. Think <laughs> like a cow. You think like a cow. That's what I want to do with the truth of the Scripture. I want to be faithful like, like uh, Bossy, Flossy the cow, whatever. I want to. I want to take that Scripture in and I want to think about it. And then I want to think about it some more. I don't want to forget it. You know, the trouble, oftentimes, as Jonathan pointed out, we read the Scripture, but we don't think about it long enough for it to stay with us. It's in and it's out and it's gone and it's forgotten. So when we talk about meditating, we're talking about lingering long enough in these passages of the Scripture to make them our own, to turn that truth over in our mind so that it's real to us, so that we gain the benefit of it. Uh, in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol or A Christmas Story, when you meet Ebenezer Scrooge, he's sitting in his counting house, and there's a pile of coins on his desk or on his table. And what's he doing? He's picking them up one at a time, and he's feeling the weight of those coins, and he's seeing the gleam off them, and he's tallying them up in his little book. He's meditating on his wealth. He loves money, and he's thinking about it picking it up what's it feel like what's it look like what could i do with this he's meditating on his money and we need to meditate on christ and in the scriptures this isn't meant to be something hard i know if you tell people meditate on the bible you know what i think the first response is a big yawn what do you mean you want me to read my bible And you want me to like for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or what how much is enough that's just a, that's a reflection of our poverty. You know, if a person's starving, they often their hunger pangs go away. They don't know they're hungry, but they are. Well, see, that should be us. If we don't feel hungry, we sort of don't get it. But, guys, if you start reading your Bibles, lingering in them, meditating on those passages, you'll get hungry again. And you'll be so jazzed about what you're seeing, you'll want to read and meditate more because you're starting to see things that matter. Jesus talked to the Pharisees in John five thirty nine, and he said this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's these that testify about me. Now, remember, there's no New Testament when Jesus says this. He's talking about the Old Testament. For many Christians, the Old Testament is a yawn and a bore. It, what's there? Numbers and names and lists, you know. But from Genesis 1-1, the creation of the earth, who spoke the worlds into existence? John 1-1 says it was Jesus. From the first verse in the Bible, you're reading about Christ. And the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head, that's Christ. And the offerings in Leviticus and Numbers, those are meant to be pictures of Christ. And the Passover lamb, and the promised son of David, and the promised son of Solomon, and on and on and on. When we read our Old Testament, we're meant to see Christ. And if we read those stories and those passages and those Psalms and Proverbs and we don't gain a clearer glimpse of Christ, we're not meditating long enough to see Him because they're supposed to tell us about Christ. So one of the primary things just on a day-to-day basis that we can do to gain a greater sense of who Christ is, what He is, what His value is to us, and what His value is in us or for us is simply to spend enough time in the Scriptures To meditate on them, to turn them over in our mind, to see Christ more clearly. The last way, and this is an important way that God helps us value what He's provided for us in Christ, is this it's our needs. It's our needs. You know, if you don't need something, you don't know its value typically. If you're not hungry, how much do you value a good meal? Probably not much. You'd say, I don't need it, you know. If you've never felt really, really cold, you wouldn't value a heated home, would you? Because you, there's no context for it. You know, in the summer, hot, muggy summer, this is my least favorite time of year. Uh, you know, you sweat and it doesn't evaporate, it doesn't go away, You just it's hot, sticky, it's nasty. You know, in the summer, what I love? I love air conditioning. God bless air conditioning and air conditioners. I love it. It's because I feel the need for it. Guys, one of the things God does in our life is this. He allows catastrophes, needs that we have no no way to meet, disasters. He allows hard things, hard knocks in our life for a variety of reasons. Remember, anything in your life God causes or He allows because He's omnipotent, can't be otherwise. Oftentimes, at least part of the reason He allows catastrophe pressing needs in our life is because he wants us to see him clearly and he wants to give us a sense of the value that he is in himself and the riches and wealth he is meant to be to us and in us so oftentimes we don't plan this this isn't like sitting down daily and reading our bible and meditating but when this when the next need comes into your life whatever it is it could be this afternoon could be financial It could be marital. It could be emotional. It could be any, anything. Ask God, Lord, how do you want to use this to help me appropriate more of what you've given me in your son? Lord, how do you want to use this need so that I can see you more closely and get the benefit of what Jesus died to give me? The incarnation, Jesus on the earth, his death and his resurrection were to make me rich. Lord, in this need, what does that wealth look like? How do you mean to meet my need this time in Christ? How are you going to show me your son more fully through this need, whatever it is? So one of the ways God's going to show you the wealth and the riches you have in Christ is when you sense the need of it. It's probably when life's not going the way you wish it did. We pursue what we consider desirable riches, wealth. That's what we're pursuing. Ask yourself what your life is characterized. Characterized by today, what are you pursuing? If you say I'm looking at my checkbook, my calendar, etc., where are your priorities? What are you pursuing? 150 years ago, Robert Browning expressed the value he saw in a young woman. Actually, she wasn't that young at this point. Elizabeth Barrett, who became his wife, in a short poem. And I think I've read this before, but I love this poem, so I'm going to read it again this morning. This was his. This was the estimation of his wife. He looked at his wife, and this is what he said. It's called Sumum Bonum, the highest good, or the greatest good. So thinking of his wife he said, All the breath and the bloom of the year in the bag of one bee, all the wonder and the wealth of the mine in the heart of one gem. In the core of one pearl all the shade and the shine of the sea. Breath and bloom, shade and shine wonder wealth and how far above them truth that's brighter than gem trust that's purer than pearl brightest truth purest trust in the universe all were for me in the kiss of one girl how do you think he felt about his wife wow See, he looked her over, he'd measured her up, and he said, "You're it, honey. You're it." I wonder as I read this. That's the way I feel about you, honey. <laughs> I was looking at my wife the other day, and I just thought, Kathy was walking the other way in the room. I thought, "Lord, I love my wife," because I've thought about her, and we've been together almost thirty years, and I I have a sense of her value and her worth. And I was just struck, Lord, I love my wife because I know her and I know what she's like and we've been through so much together. And that's what Browning felt to his wife. And as I read this, I ask myself, Lord, could I write that kind of a poem to Christ? Do I have that kind of emotional tie and sentiment and investment? Have I measured him up, looked him over appropriately? And gain that sense in Christ, purest trust, brightest truth. You know, the wealth of the mind, the the beauty of the pearl, that Lord, that's you. That's you. That's the conclusion we should be able to come to. He's it. And if we don't know that, if we haven't known this, and I don't say this in any way to condemn us, it's just because our hearts have been stuck on lesser trinkets. And God says, I want to raise your eyes up. I want you to see my son. And seeing my son, I want you to see the wealth of the world, the wealth of the universe that's yours. Closing down with Forbes magazine again <clears throat> Warren Buffett. Poor Warren. Warren is third place in the world's richest individuals. So Warren's fortune did jump 10 billion last year to 47 billion on rising shares of Berkshire Hathaway stocks. And they said the Oracle of Omaha shrewdly invested $5 billion in Goldman Sachs and $3 billion in GE amid the 2008 market collapse. He also, for folks in Topeka, this is significant, recently acquired railroad giant Burlington Northern Santa Fe for $26 billion. In his annual shareholder letter, Buffett wrote this, We've put a lot of money to work during the chaos of the last two years. When it's raining gold, reach for a bucket, not a thimble. Guys, it's raining gold. And God says, grab your buckets. Leave your thimbles behind. This financial guru has great spiritual insight. It's raining gold. Grab your buckets. Lose the thimbles. Grab your buckets, lose the thimbles. Thinking through this, if you're a Christian, rethink the question, who is the richest person in the world really? Who's the richest person in the world really? If you're a Christian, you are. I am. If we've got Christ, we've got the wealth and the riches of the universe in Christ. Lord, I'm struck again and again by how little I apprehend You, how small my desire for You is. Lord, I pray that You would help us see through the pages of Your Word, through our needs, Lord, through asking You, through the illumination of Your Spirit, Lord God, would You help us raise our eyes up and see in the Lord Jesus our hearts' desires, all our needs met, Lord, our brightest truth, our greatest wealth, our ultimate riches in the life of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to use and benefit from the trinkets you give us on this earth for a brief season. Thanks for that. Help us to enjoy them appropriately and share them generously. But Lord, help us to lay hold of the greatest treasure of all, your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.